0: and you'll find that on page 1184 of your pew bible it's entitled living as those made alive in christ since then you have been raised with christ set your hearts on things above where christ is seated at the right hand of god set your minds on things above not on earthly things for you died and your life is now hidden with christ in god when christ who is your life Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you have a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts since as members of one body you are called to peace. And be thankful, let the message of Christ dwell among you richly, as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him.
1: Oh, hi. Uh, Colossians 3. Uh, My name's Scott, one of the ministers here. And uh, when I say Colossians 3, I mean I hope you have it open in front of you. Colossians chapter 3. And uh, it seems to me that in life, you want to try to avoid fashion disasters. Don't you think? Isn't that right? Uh, I think it's okay to take risks in what you wear Uh, if you can, but you want to avoid wearing clothes that will look utterly ridiculous in photographs not that much long afterwards. And that's not always straightforward, I've recently discovered. I was reading and I found out that apparently it's very easy to look good. you just got to find a pair of pants that fit you and match it with a nicely cut shirt or um, perhaps just a dress that's cut to fit your shape, whatever it is. But here's what I learned. The key to looking trendy and edgy and fashionable is to get as close as you can to, to ugly as you can without trespassing over that line. That's not easy, is it? Now, there are some obvious fashion disasters. right? Just about everything a man wore in the 1970s. Some of you wore that. And you shouldn't be proud of it. It's not just a fashion problem, it's a moral problem, (laughs) and you require deep repentance and confession. But uh, more recently, there have been other trends that I think uh, have been disaster. So the extreme ripped jeans trend, you know, uh, passes over the line. A few tears above the knee, nobody cares about that. But the whole more whole than jeans look, okay, over the line. Female pop singers like Jessie J and others, they're well known for multiple costume changes throughout the course of their concerts, but nothing said fashion disaster in my mind more than Lady Gaga's meat dress from a few years ago, where she wore a dress that was made out of raw meat. Now, I really am all for creative freedom, but Lady Gaga, you're wearing a fillet steak on your head. (laughs) And I just think you will want to avoid fashion disasters like that. Now, today's passage, as it turns out, is about what's in fashion for Christians, right? What should Christians clothe themselves with? What should those people who have the full Christian experience because they're united to Jesus, what should they look like? And even more than in the celebrity world, this is an area where you want to avoid fashion disasters because it's very possible to be clothed inappropriately in a spiritual sense. Now, we're going to get to that in a moment. Today, uh, as Andrew says, we're, we're in Colossians. We're really marking the halfway point in our series in Colossians. We've just ticked over into chapter 3. And it takes a turn from the theological towards the practical from this point onwards. And in terms of theology so far, we've, we've seen the Gospels growing all over the world, as well as in the Colossian Christians. The Gospel is centred on Jesus, the Supreme Creator, the All-Sufficient Saviour. And God has reconciled the Colossian Christians, in fact, anyone who might turn and trust to Himself through the death of Jesus. And because the fullness of God lives in Jesus, well, Jesus is entirely worthy of the Apostle Paul's strenuous efforts in proclaiming Him. He was worthy of the Colossians and our loyalty. And because the Colossians had been given fullness in Christ, that is, full spiritual existence, they weren't to be duped by some of the other philosophies that, were, that existed in that day. Now, have a look in your Bibles. In the Colossians' day, the philosophies might have included uh, religious kind of ones that centered on Jewish food laws or religious festivals or Sabbaths, which you see in chapter 2, verse 16. Or 2, verse 18, they might have been sort of super spiritual philosophies, uh, that focused on angel worship or seeing visions. Uh, towards the end of chapter 2, they might have been kind of ascetic traditions that treated the body harshly. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. In our day, the kind of philosophies of the competing voices are not just kind of formal, systematic ones like your secular atheism, but also just the run-of-the-mill Australian culture that encourages us to chill out, enjoy life, don't take anything too seriously, find your spirituality from within, or any number of other things to which we are tempted to look to find fullness. The Apostle Paul says, nah, whatever other competing voices are out there, you've got to know that we have been given fullness in Christ. Now the question before us today is, what virtues ought we, that is Christians who have been given such fullness, what should we clothe ourselves with? In other words, how do we avoid a spiritual fashion disaster? And uh, even before we get to the whole um, spiritual fashion disaster bit, we need to look very, very carefully at verses 1 to 4. Because they form the theological groundwork of everything that follows and verses 1 to 4 really describe life and death in the overlap of the ages. What exactly is our spiritual environment between the resurrection and the return of Jesus in this overlapping of the ages in which we find ourselves? Now, as a, um, as a minister, I want to spare everyone from all kinds of grief, but uh, especially spiritual grief. And so uh, here's a warning I must give to you. Uh, whenever another Christian wants to show you a diagram of the end times, run away, duck for cover, or take a deep breath. Okay? Um, there, there'll often be words like eschatological, which just means to do with the end times. That's okay. But as, you, as soon as you see a diagram that's got words like the rapture and the great tribulation, like you just want to be out of there. Okay? Here's exhibit A. And I think it's meant to be a joke, although I'm not sure anyone at 8 o'clock got it. Exhibit A. All right. So from the resurrection, according to this diagram uh, of Jesus in 33 to May 2011, nothing much happened. But following that major eschatological end time event of Osama bin Laden being killed by US forces, my goodness, all hell could break loose from any time this point onwards. So you see a diagram like this being shown by another Christian, just get out. I mean, don't even take the children, just save yourself. You know what I'm saying? But having said that, here's a diagram that I prepared earlier, (laughs) which really does just describe the age that, that we live in, or the overlapping of our ages. And that's a clear thing you can see from this diagram. There's an overlapping of ages, right? When Jesus first came, his life, his death, his resurrection, he came into what you might describe as the present age or the present evil age, perhaps. But also in his life, death, and resurrection, he he began his kingdom, but his kingdom will not exist in its completeness until he returns, which is sometimes called the second coming. This means that right now God's kingdom is present in its beginning, but still future in its completeness. Now that's at the big picture macro level and overlapping of the ages. But how does that apply to us as individuals? Well, you could describe it like this. Uh, When we first placed our hope in the Lord Jesus Christ, in his life, death and resurrection, we died to our old selves, our old way of life. And we were united with Jesus in his resurrection so that we were raised to new spiritual life, a new heavenly life, as it were. But it doesn't always seem like that, does it? It doesn't always feel like that. And that's because our new heavenly lives are hidden with Christ, They haven't been revealed to the world or to the universe just yet, but they will. All will be clear when Jesus returns in glory and we will stand with him sharing in his glory as well. That's life and death in the overlapping of the ages. And that's exactly what Colossians 3 says. So read along with me verses 1 to 4 in your own Bibles. Since then, you've been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God, set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Okay, when you place your hope in Jesus, you died to your old life. That's what verse 3 says your old way of life that was controlled by sin and self righteousness. You died, in fact, to the basic spiritual forces of the world. But at that very same time, you were raised with Christ in his resurrection. That's what verse 1 says. And so spiritually speaking, it's as if we have a new heavenly life with Jesus. Now, of course, it doesn't always feel like that. It doesn't always seem like that in these overlapping of the ages. But it will when he appears in glory, verse 4, and we will all share in his glory. And so instead of us worrying about why it doesn't seem like um, we've got this new heavenly life in Jesus, the Apostle Paul says, no, there's something better for you to think about, to focus on. Set your hearts on things above. Set your mind on things above. Did you see that? Shape your motives, your aims, your decisions, your thinking, your affections, your solutions, your loyalty, your lifestyle on Jesus, who is seated at the right hand of God above or to put it in the negative don't set your minds that's your aims your hopes your affections on earthly things now in a moment we're going to look at a list of vices that we're going to be encouraged to cast off to disrobe and a list of virtues we're going to be encouraged to put on to clothe ourselves with but we do need this theological foundation first so that we understand that we actually do have the ability to do just that To cast off vices and clothe ourselves with virtues. Too often as Christians who have died to our old selves, who have been raised with Jesus to new heavenly life, who have even been given his empowering Holy Spirit, we act like we're just kind of helpless victims of our circumstances or our culture or even our hormones and we have no option but to remain in sin. Can't help it. I just have to say that destructive word, whatever it might be. And we feel like we can't cast off anything, and so we give up everything. But that's actually not true. It's difficult in this overlapping of the ages, but not impossible. And in any particular scenario, we do have the potential to resist sin and embrace Jesus and his virtues. So let's not think of us, ourselves, as kind of helpless and hopeless on the flip side though, and it's more occasionally, but right now it's worth knowing there are a movement of young Christians who believe this, occasionally there'll be other Christians who tell you that you can have a sinless perfect Christian life here on earth in the overlapping of the ages. I have met them at previous churches, they are usually well-meaning but have completely misunderstood that we live in the overlap of the ages. They have what is technically called an overrealized eschatology which just means they drag the blessings of the future age into this age. And the reason why this is a problem is that it either leads towards pride or to despair. If you think that you're living a perfectly sinless life, you're going to be proud, aren't you? As well as probably blind to some of your own shortcomings. And I've actually met people like this. They've been amongst the most proud and unteachable people I've ever met. But... If you fail, then you despair, don't you? And you might even conclude that you're a second-rate Christian. Maybe not even a Christian at all. And that's just cruel and it's untrue. And I've met people like that as well. A day is coming when we will live a perfect, sinless life. But it's not yet. It's when Jesus returns and verse 4, we will share in his glory. So we are both able to resist sin, which I'm about to encourage us all to do, and the continuing ongoing effort that is required shows us that it doesn't happen automatically, nor do we ever fully arrive until Christ also arrives, when our previously hidden heavenly lives will be revealed in all glory. Until that time, we will resist sin imperfectly. So I do want to say, don't despair, brothers and sisters, but press on. Or let me put it in another way. I was reminded of this by Raphael, who's in my small group, which is why you should be in a small group with Raphael. And if you can't be in one with Raphael, be in another one. But he he reminded me of this excellent saying. We have been saved, past tense, from the penalty of sin, the very nanosecond we trusted in Jesus. We are being saved, present tense, from the power of sin because we're united with Jesus and we have his Holy Spirit within us. And then when Jesus returns, we will be saved from the very presence of sin, when all that is evil is eliminated. And don't you want to say, bring that on? But we're not there yet. And so in the meantime, in this overlapping of the ages, we are to set our hearts and our minds on things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Now that we've looked at that theological, uh, spiritual foundation, the next section, which is the second point, is to rid ourselves of a whole bunch of vices that belong to the old life, that belong to the old self, the earthly nature. We're encouraged to rid ourselves. When, um, Do you guys like the royals, by the way? Anyone here like the royal family? I like the royal family. Um, before Prince Harry was that kind of self-deprecating, really likeable chap that he is now, when he was 20, he went to a fancy dress party dressed up as a Nazi. Uh, it did create a bit of a scandal. It's in the newspapers. And uh, it's worth remembering that the Nazis were not only responsible for the killing of six million Jews, but also for the outbreak of World War II, which killed half a million British people. So dressing up like a Nazi is in poor taste for any Englishman, but entirely inappropriate for someone like Prince Harry who could one day end up being the king of England. Now ask yourself the question, could Prince Harry actually put on the swastika armband? Could he physically go to a party dressed like that? Well, of course he could. It's in the photo, isn't it? But was it in any way appropriate for him? Was it in any way fitting for him to do that? Well, absolutely not. The clothes don't match the man that he is. And when it comes to ridding ourselves of vices, we're not saying it's impossible to act in these adverse ways. We're saying it just doesn't fit. It belongs to the old way of life, the life we once lived, the old self. It's not that you cannot do them, it's that they don't match the new self, the new person who was raised with Jesus. And so we ought to rid ourselves of them. Well, in fact, it's actually put way more strongly in uh, Colossians chapter three, verse five. Read along with me in your own Bibles there, please. "Put to death," he says, "Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You, you used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, and so it goes. Rid yourselves. And you can see at the front of the list of vices to put to death or to, to rid ourselves of uh, sexual immorality and impurity and lust all clearly belonging to the sexual realm. All kinds of sexual immorality and impurity that's beyond a marriage between a man and a woman. Whether it's the doing of the act, whether it's the fantasizing about the doing of the act is something to rid ourselves of. Now, the question of same-sex marriage is obviously of huge discussion in our society at the moment. We prayed for it earlier. I generally don't think it is the job of Christians to tell others how to live their lives. Uh, although when you're not just talking about the private lives of other people, but at changing the basic building block of our society, then I think we ought to speak up and vote up. And I hope that we can do that in gracious ways. But let me say that our voice and our vote will have a very hollow ring if in our own lives we are permissive of sexual immorality and lust. Sex belongs to God, you know that, right? And he's given it to us to use within marriage as classically defined and it's something to be embraced and celebrated as well as defended but immorality and impurity and lust belong to our earthly natures, the old lives we previously lived. The ones that we died to before we were raised to new spiritual life in Christ. And so we rid ourselves of those things. Impossible to talk about this issue without talking about the question of pornography. If that's something you feel you struggle to rid yourself of and you would like help with that, I encourage you to seek help. You're always welcome to contact us in the office. You could even on a connect card without mentioning your name. Just say, I'm a lady, I need help, here's my number. I'm a guy, I need help, here's my number. And I, someone will contact you during the week, if that would help. I don't know if you ever hear people comment that Christians and churches seem obsessed with sex. <laughs> Always talking about it. What is it with you guys? I think that's a ridiculous thing to say, especially in our uh, highly sexualized society, as if we're the ones who are obsessed with sex. Uh, I think we only talk about it when it comes up in scripture and culture, but uh, man, I think it's true that we're quiet about greed. I mean, what's the greatest scandal? Is it a a hot-blooded young man who lusts after a beautiful young woman or vice versa, both of them in the prime of their physicality or is it that we love money? and the stuff that it brings, and we make very cool-headed decisions about our money and how we use it that could only be described as selfish. I remember uh, once uh, at a previous church, a youth coordinator got stood down for sleeping with his fiancée about a month before their wedding, even though they'd been contrite and confessed their sin. And I just did not feel good that we penalised a young couple really harshly who'd made a mistake in the heat of the moment, who had given themselves to service for many years, when every Sunday, dozens of people who had no intention of giving themselves to service rolled into the car park in luxury cars, all bought with cool calculation. And no one ever said a word to them. I mean, that seemed like a scandal to me. It's interesting, isn't it, that it's greed and not sex, which is here described as idolatry. Did you notice that? I mean, I'm sure sex can be too, but... Friends, we need to do something about our greed, those of us who trust in Christ. How can we claim to have fullness in him if we never give any of our gear away? It just smells a bit suspect. So let's practice generosity and rid ourselves of greed. It's one of um, great delights actually being a part of this fellowship to see generosity flying around in all sorts of places. Well, let's keep doing that, practicing generosity, ridding ourselves of greed. You'll see, um, as the passage rolls on, there are, there are other vices, more things. Uh, anger and malice, verse 8. All kinds of ways that we use words woefully, whether that's slandering others, you know, making false and damaging claims about people behind their backs, uh, coarse joking. Um, look at verse 9, even lying. Do you find it odd that we lie to each other so frequently about all sorts of things? so often well that belongs to the old self and we need to take it off like a swastika armband or like a bad pair of 70s trousers along with any other practices that belong to the way we used to live before we were raised with christ to new heavenly life rid yourselves thirdly and uh quite oppositely then the apostle paul from verse 12 urges us to clothe ourselves with a great list of virtues Uh, hopefully the idea of taking off old vices makes sense enough get rid of these old bad earthly ways of living that don't fit your new self which is meant to look more and more like your creator so that's the negative side of the equation rid yourself of these things but it is a bit negative isn't it and uh, by itself it might just leave us unclothed Negative and nude. It's not how you want to be. So thirdly, we're instructed to clothe ourselves with virtues befitting our new self, our new person, the one raised with Christ, the one whose heavenly life is hidden with Christ. Friends, let's have a look at how the Apostle Paul puts it from verse 12 onwards. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved. Aren't they wonderful words? Holy and dearly loved people. Clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another. And so it goes. I mean, if if we're going to set our hearts and minds on things above, not on earthly things, we do need to know what to get rid of. But we also need to know what to put on. And so Colossians chapter three, verse twelve tells us to clothe ourselves with these kind of virtues: compassion, humility, gentleness patience and if you think that that all sounds like kind of private personal kind of qualities think again from verse 13 it's very obvious that we're expected to work this stuff out together bear with one another forgive one another love verse 14 presumably one another let peace rule our common life verse 15 You see, they're all plural words and ideas because we need to work it out and work at it together. It's just another encouragement for us to meet together week by week at church, to stay for morning tea, uh, to meet in small groups during the week. Our natural individualism, where we think in terms of I rather than we, is just so foreign to the way the New Testament thinks, to the way that Jesus thinks to the way that God has made us. Verse 16 is interesting. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns and songs from the Spirit. I mean, I say it's interesting not only because it reminds us that the message of Christ, that mystery revealed that God is reconciling us to himself through his Son, it's to be our preoccupation, it's to dwell among us richly, So obviously that's a communal thing, but what's even more interesting is that the Apostle uses the very same words, did you notice? Teaching and admonishing that he used of his own ministry in chapter 1, verse 28. But here he clearly expects us all to use them. I mean, in a different way, I'm sure. But we could all teach and admonish one another. I hope to see people doing that in 20 minutes over morning tea. I hope to hear about people doing it in small groups throughout the week. All of us are invited into this ministry of teaching and admonishing one another as we go about our Christian lives. Even more strikingly, the Apostle expects that we'll be doing that as we sing together so that we're not just singing to God, having a little private moment with Him, but we're actually singing to each other as well, trying to build one another up. And you would have noticed, I think, as has, uh, Andrew has mentioned earlier, that in each of those last three verses, thankfulness is mentioned. Have a look. Be thankful, verse 15. Gratitude in your hearts, verse 16. Giving thanks to God, verse 17. Do you know, I, um, I learned thankfulness from the English. At a previous church I was at um, in London, just off Hampstead Heath, if you know that part of London, and uh, the English are kind of caricatured as whinging poms, aren't they? Not my experience. I was struck by their attitude of thankfulness to each other and to God. In fact, they admonished me by their attitude, just as this passage anticipates. I rather think it's Australians who lack grace and gratitude these days. Now you look at the list of vices, um, list of virtues it's not like you just choose one of those vices to rid or you choose one of those virtues compassion thankfulness love whatever and you just think about that one because we're meant to clothe ourselves with all of them and more but i wonder as we read through whether there's one or two that would be worth giving attention to maybe you've got on the shirt of compassion but you're not wearing the pants of forgiveness how embarrassing for you might have noticed I brought along uh, some shoes with me this morning. First pair of shoes, cowboy boots. I wore these to my wedding. <laughs> not tucked into the suit though, okay? I just wanted to give Carolyn a visual as to what she was getting herself into. <laughs> Marrying a cowboy but not in the good sense of it. I, uh, I also brought along a pair of black uh, business shoes as well, just in case. Um, but you look at either of those pairs of shoes. I mean, do these look like the right pair of shoes for life at the beach? Of course not. Of course not. So we also brought along a pair of Javianas, a pair of thongs. If you don't live in Australia, flip-flops is my, might be what you know them as. And uh, I reckon these things make sense of the place in which we live. I think these things fit Now, when we think about sexual immorality we think about greed think about slander think about lying they're like the cowboy boots they might have fit in a previous life they belong to the old self they match the old person who died the very nanosecond we first trusted in christ but when we think about compassion we think about kindness humility gentleness patience forgiveness peacefulness unity, love, thankfulness to God, speaking his word to one another. Man, they're like the right shoes for the job, aren't they? They're like clothes that match the occasion. They're the virtues that are just fitting for our new lives with Christ. And so we take off the old and we put on the new clothes, the new shoes, the new virtues, that are fitting for people who have been raised to new life with Jesus. Since you have been raised with Christ, says the Apostle, set your hearts and minds, clothe yourselves with things from above rather than the things from below. Friends, that is how you avoid a spiritual fashion disaster. Let me finish in a word of prayer. Uh, Lord Jesus, we thank you that the very nanosecond we trust in you, that we are raised to new spiritual life, a new heavenly life, as it were, although one that is hidden in you. We do look forward to the time where we're not just saved from the penalty of sin or the power of sin, but we're saved from the very presence of it. Well, we know that's not just yet. So in the meantime, help us to set our hearts and set our minds on things above to clothe ourselves with virtues befitting the new people that we have been made in the Lord Jesus Christ. Move our hearts and our wills and obedience to do just that for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen.